Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. The history of humans and vaccination, it actually goes way back. Though it's hard to pinpoint exactly when it started, accounts from the 1500s describe smallpox inoculation already being practiced in China and India. This involved grinding up smallpox scabs and blowing them into people's noses, or scratching goo from smallpox sores into the skin. Which is gross. But before it was eradicated, the most common form of smallpox killed an average of three out of every ten people infected. They were understandably desperate. These days, we have many different ways of making vaccines to trigger our immune systems using dead or crippled virus or bacteria, or using bits of viral or bacterial proteins. And now we have a new way. Now, my Heidermai, welcome to Our Changing World. I'm Claire Kincannon. This week, mRNA vaccine technology. How mRNA vaccines like Pfizer BioNTech work in the cell, and why this kind of technology is so exciting. Now, to really understand this, we first need to deep dive into how the cells in our bodies work, and specifically how information moves in the cell. To do this, I've enlisted help. First, microbiologist and immunologist James Usher. Hi, yep. So James Usher, I'm a clinical microbiologist from a clinical perspective and an immunologist from a research perspective and science director of the Vaccine Alliance out here around New Zealand. And second, the traditional Irish slash bluegrass band, a genre they've termed kelpgrass, Wee Banjo 3. So... Information flow in the cell. The flow of genetic information is one way in our cells. So it flows from our DNA, which encodes our genes, which are like the master blueprints that encode for proteins. And proteins are the molecular machines uh, within our cells that carry out various functions. But that information flows in one direction from the, the DNA to the protein, and it does it via mRNA. See, what James has used here is a very classic analogy, one of DNA being a blueprint, which is great. It totally works. But it is a very visual analogy. So instead, an audio analogy for you. First, DNA. Now, you probably know about this. Double-stranded in a helix. It's a pretty distinctive looking shape. And DNA contains all the genetic information to make the proteins that make a living thing function. So it has all of the musical instructions for all of the instruments written down. In our analogy, the playing of music is the making of proteins in the cell. So with all the proteins being made in the right place at the right time, that DNA becomes the song that is you. 
DNA is important. So it's tucked away in the nucleus, a little compartment in the cell to which entry is strictly regulated. There is also a whole suite of DNA repair machinery to patch it up if it ever gets damaged. The cell is really protective of it. We know, thank you CSI, that if you leave cells behind you at the scene of a crime, whether they are blood, hair or skin cells, they contain your DNA. Because this is the crazy cool thing, a copy of your DNA is in nearly every cell in your body. And you are a being of about 37 trillion cells. But there are about 200 different types of cells. Think eye cell, skin cell, heart muscle cell, brain cell, etc. So if it's the same DNA in all those cells, what makes them different? Well, not all of the DNA music is being played in every cell. And this is where the RNA comes in ribonucleic acid. Now, as an aside, there are a couple of different types of RNA. This is also super interesting. DNA is really long, it's like three billion notes, but the genes, the sensible riffs to be played, they only make up a part of it. And for a very long time, people thought the rest was junk, just like filler or static. But seems like that is wrong. So there are a whole bunch of different RNAs that are made by copying off the DNA and they seem to have a regulatory role in what gene tunes get played. What we want to focus on right now is our main player, messenger RNA, shortened to mRNA. So mRNA is a temporary copy of the genes, a temporary blueprint that tells molecular machines called ribosomes within the cytoplasm of the cell how to make the protein machines. Because the DNA is trapped, well, protected, inside the nucleus of the cell, it can't get out. And hey, it's too much information anyway. So instead, under strict regulation, copies of the music to be played in that specific cell are made. In these copies... These are called messenger RNA. And this gets sent to the main part of the cell, the cytoplasm. This is where the mRNA gets translated into a protein. Basically, a little machine called a ribosome reads the mRNA and uses the instructions written down to make a protein. Of course, the cell doesn't just make one single protein. There will be a whole bunch of mRNAs that will be copied off the DNA and made, or played, into proteins. And in different cells in the body, the same thing. Now, some proteins are made in all of the cells, like the really basic and essential ones but then others will be specific to that cell's function. It is which genes are expressed in which cell types that determine how that cell functions. So a photoreceptor in the eye expresses a very different range of genes and therefore produces a very different range of proteins to a myocyte, a muscle cell. So in the fiddle cell, it might sound like this. It's got those essential guitar and bass proteins being played, but also specific fiddle proteins. And in the mandolin cell, 
This is what it sounds like. So this is what messenger RNA does in the cell. It gets copied from the DNA, gets read by the ribosome, job done. It's a highly disposable molecule. A quick copy, the tune gets played, gets ripped up and thrown away. The main sheet music store, the DNA, that gets kept nice and safe in the nucleus. And this is the mind-blowing amazing bit. We have figured out how to write music in a way that the cells will play it. We have figured out how to carefully construct messenger RNA and get it into a cell so that the cell thinks it has come from the nucleus and makes it into a protein. So for the COVID-19 vaccine, we send in the SARS-CoV-2 spike protein tune. SARS-CoV-2 is the name of the virus that causes COVID-19. And the spike protein is a little protein that sticks on the outside of the virus. But what we've done in this vaccine is we've used the same music notation book and we've written the notes in the same way. And so the cell doesn't realise that it's come from somewhere other than the nucleus and it plays a tune. And as it regularly does, the cell then presents the protein on the outside of its cell membrane for the scanning immune system cells to test. When they find it, they go, that's not one of ours. And you get an immune response. Which is why it is such a powerful way to make a vaccine. An appeal of RNA as a vaccine is firstly its, its safety. So it is a, a temporary message. It can't alter your DNA. It doesn't integrate into our genome, into the DNA. So it's only a temporary message that expresses the protein of interest. Um, you can easily get any protein you want by uh, including the sequence that encodes for that protein. So it enables um, rapid development of vaccines. This easy sequence change, this is key. Because we understand the codes that cells use in DNA. We have done for a while now. We know it's written in four letters, A, T, C, and G. And combinations of three of these letters together we call a codon, and they code for building blocks of proteins. When it came to SARS-CoV-2, scientists just needed to know what the sequence of the letters were for the spike protein. So first you need to know what code you need, so what protein you're trying to make. And over decades of research, scientific community has learned a lot about uh, the genetic code, and so an important point to make in the case of the COVID vaccine is how remarkably quickly we got that code. So it was at the end of December last year that there were these first cases of pneumonia reported in Wuhan in China, and it was within a week or two that that virus had been sequenced, and that sequence of the whole virus had been made available online. DNA and RNA sequencing has been a transformational change that has enabled the rapid production of this vaccine. So having that sequence in hand, uh, the vaccine developers such as BioNTech and Moderna have been able to design their vaccine, the sequence of their vaccine, uh, within days 
of that sequence becoming available. Um, and then because they had the uh, production know-how, they were able to start producing that vaccine for clinical trials um, within days of that. So, mm. I mean, it really is an amazing story and an amazing technological game-changer. There was a bit of talk last year about how the mRNA vaccine was developed so quickly, but actually its development was the culmination of about three decades worth of work and research into this area. This is because there were a few hurdles that had to be first overcome and many things to be optimised. First is immunogenicity. This means the immune response that the mRNA triggers. Now, obviously, we do want to stimulate an immune response. That's the point of a vaccine. But we want a kind of Goldilocks level of response to the spike protein, which is referred to as the antigen. This is the target for the immune system to make antibodies against. Cells are acutely tuned in to foreign mRNA or mRNA in the wrong place because this is part of our defence against viruses. But for the vaccine, we actually want the cells to take in the mRNA and make the protein, not freak out, destroy the mRNA and shut down everything. We don't mind a little bit of, of sensing that the mRNA is in the wrong place and uh, some danger signal, as it were. But if we overstimulate that, what the cell does is it effectively shuts down protein production mm. and it's, it won't make the antigen and you won't get a stimulation of the T cells and B cells that make antibodies and are able to kill infected cells and provide that long-term protection. Our cells do that because if they sense a virus, they don't want to be making more virus. Mm -hmm. But we need to try and bypass that. To do this bypass, scientists worked on a few things. One is a modification used in the mRNA letters. Like I said, DNA uses four letters, A, C, G and T. When mRNA copies are made from DNA, it uses A, C, G and then replaces T's with U's. In the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine, every U in the mRNA has been replaced with a modified version. This actually has the effect of calming the immune system, so it doesn't instantly destroy the mRNA. Another thing scientists worked on is the packaging of the mRNA to protect it, and also to help it get endocytosed or taken up by the cell. If we just give uh, naked RNA, um, then it's likely to be uh, broken down or much will be lost before it enters the cell. Okay, so we put it in a little capsule. <laughs> a, a little lipid, lipid nanoparticle, so basically a very small particle that's made up of um, lipid or little bits of fat, a fat globule essentially, that A, protects the um, RNA, but it also helps it to get into the cell. Yeah, and it helps it get into the cell because our cell membranes are also made of lipids, correct? Correct, yeah. So when it attaches to the cell, we get that kind of endocytosis bubble and it takes a little lipid nanoparticle capsule and mRNA and it encloses it all in another lipid bubble and brings it into the cell. Yes, and it can also fuse with the membrane, either of the the outside of the cell or within that vacuole, that bubble, that endosome, uh, to release the mRNA into the... So this cell. was a step that was key, developing this lipid nanoparticle? Yes. The formation of the lipid 
nanoparticles is, is one of the key components that has enabled the development of mRNA vaccines. There are other methods that can be used to, to deliver mRNA, but this has proven particularly successful. Once you've got your mRNA into the cell, you've got one more step to go. Getting the cell to play the music by giving it all the right cues and instructions. That's where it comes down to both the sequence, so the codon optimization, uh, those base modifications um, on, of the uracil, also ensuring that there's the normal structures that our mRNA has uh, included, such as uh, a cap that is required for, uh, for the ribosome to translate the the mRNA and also all of our mRNAs also have what's called a poly A tail which is basically um, at the end they've got a string of A's um, and that's important for the half-life and stability of the mRNA as well so we've had to sort of mimic what the body normally does to try and increase the stability and, and therefore increase the the production of the protein of interest, the antigen, in the, in the case of the COVID vaccine, the spike protein of the, of the virus. So when people are putting together the code of that mRNA, they'll give it a nice little cap, they'll give it a tail, they'll give it kind of like the this normal start and stop codes that exist yes. in the cell, they'll give it the fancy modified bases, and then they'll also write in the code for the spike protein, if it's the COVID vaccine. Yes, yeah, exactly. Three days. James Usher told me that three days is all that the COVID-19 vaccine developers needed to design the sequence of their vaccine once they saw the SARS-CoV-2 sequence. And actually, producing the mRNA is quick and relatively easy too. From a manufacturing perspective so once you've designed your sequence and you then make it in a big chemical biochemical reaction in the laboratory so essentially you put that sequence into what's called a plasmid and a plasmid's like a a mini bacterial chromosome it's a piece of circular dna that propagates in, in in bacteria and you can then isolate that bit of dna out of the bacteria and you can use enzymes uh, to make the RNA off that DNA copy. So we're still using the same direction of informational flow. It still goes from DNA to RNA. We're stopping at RNA, but we're, we're making it uh, biochemically off that DNA sequence. So we use what's called a DNA-dependent RNA polymerase um, from a, bacteria, a bacterial virus, bacteriophage, and that... Um, recognises a sequence that's been put on the plasmid um, in front of the mRNA that we want to make and that uh, those enzymes then produce the produce that RNA. That RNA is then purified in, in the laboratory through a number of standard steps and then packaged into the lipid nanoparticle. And really all that's required for that biochemical step of making the RNA uh, is the plasmid, you need the enzyme, the, the DNA-dependent RNA polymerase, and then you need the bases, the building blocks of the RNA. So it's essentially mm. the plasmid has the recipe or instructions, yes. the polymerase is the little machine, yes. and then the bases are just the ingredients. Yeah, the building blocks, yeah. Off you go, polymerase, just make some yep. copies of this. Yes. And, uh, I mean, you do this in a large scale, say... 30 litres or, or that sort of scale of a large chemical reaction and you can make millions and millions of doses of vaccine. 
so it's easy to build the code and easy to produce the mRNA. What does this mean for right now? And what could it mean for the future? What you said there with regards to the speed of making the mRNA vaccine, the code for the vaccine mm. within three days. So that seems pretty powerful. Mm. And now we're hearing about results of clinical trials into the variants. And so that would have been the same, right? You just change some of the sequences in your code, you just figure out what the new code is for the variant, and then you can produce it super quickly. Exactly. Yep. So exactly the same process. You can uh, repurpose your manufacturing capacity to make a variant vaccine within, within days. As long as you know what the code is of what you want to make, you can make a, a, the mRNA vaccine for it. So with that in mind, what do you think the future for this kind of technology will be? Look, I think it is transformational, um, particularly, well, I mean, I think firstly in the setting of emerging infections and pandemics. So while the current pandemic is forefront in people's minds, probably many people remember the swine flu pandemic as well and we've had other coronaviruses such as uh, SARS and the original SARS virus and MERS that have emerged this century as well. Um, we're constantly being threatened by novel viruses, um, Ebola is another, Zika, it can, it can go on. So I think there's great opportunity uh, to rapidly make vaccines uh, for novel and emerging viral infections. Um, there's also the potential to replace existing um, vaccines. Um, I think influenza is a great example of that, where we, we need a... Ideally, it would be good to have a better vaccine uh, against influenza, and uh, one because with the influenza vaccine, we have to change that every year as well. And this may well provide a, an excellent solution going forward. I mean, you could even imagine, a, and we don't know whether we will or not, need booster doses for SARS-Coronavirus-2, for COVID, you could imagine that you could be having your flu and COVID vaccine all in one shot mm. each year. So um, I think there's great potential there. I think another area where this has really got uh, great potential is in the cancer field for, for, for cancer vaccines. Um, and there's already been a lot of research into the, in fact, much of the early research into, in clinical trials with mRNA vaccines were in the, in the cancer space. So we've got this amazing mRNA technology and potentially it will be the future of our vaccines. And as you said previously, you know, maybe it'll help us in the fight against cancer. Is there research happening in this area here in New Zealand? Look, I mean, there have been um, groups that have been involved in looking at uh, RNA vaccines in the past. And I'm sure that there'll be a significant increase in interest in this space going forward. I mean, this is clearly, uh, these vaccines have now gone prime time and have proved themselves as, as a successful vaccine technology that can be manufactured and delivered. So I think there'll be a lot of interest in this going forward. And I think the other thing with RNA vaccines is it does lend itself as something that doesn't necessarily need to be done in a massive 
vaccine manufacturing facility uh, centralised in one or two places overseas, but it's potentially something that could be decentralised. We're already seeing talks about Moderna establishing manufacturing capacity um, in Australia and there's no reason why other countries such as New Zealand couldn't also look at having the ability in future to be able to rapidly respond to uh, pandemics through manufacturing in country as well. For me, researching about this journey of mRNA vaccine technology, it has seemed to be like a really intricate puzzle. So you unlock one part, but then you reach the next puzzle and then you figure out that bit and you have to deal with the next issue until you finally figured out all the steps along the way. And this is not to say that mRNA vaccines will replace all of our existing ways of making vaccines. But this way of getting our cells to make useful proteins using their own machinery is pretty amazing, as well as the rapid adaptability and easy production. I just wonder what the next application will be. Thanks to James Usher, Martin Howley and Kiana June Weber for their help with this episode. Thanks also to all the members of We Banjo 3 for allowing use of their track, Dawn Breaks. You can find out more about the band on www.webanjo3.com. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Sound engineering was by Phil Benj. Tim Watkin is the executive producer. You can follow Our Changing World for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeart or wherever you like to listen to podcasts. If you are enjoying the show, please help spread the word about it by recommending it to friends or family. If you want to find out more about this topic, I've put up some helpful links on the website, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can find all of our previous episodes there too, and you can subscribe to our newsletter. We are at RNZ Science on Facebook and Twitter, and we would love to hear your thoughts. Don't forget to check out some of the other RNZ podcasts too, many of which are award-winning. If you visit the website, you can click on the podcast and series tab. There is something for everyone there. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. I'll be back next week. Kia pai to wiki. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.